Chapter 19, Part 1 of The Teeth of the Tiger. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Teeth of the Tiger by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter 19. The Snare is Laid. Beware, Lupin. The power that had impelled Don Luis to battle and victory was so intense that it suffered, so to speak, no cheek. Disappointment, rage, humiliation, torture were all swallowed up in an immediate desire for action and information, together with a longing to continue the chase. The rest was but an incident of no importance, which would soon be very simply explained. The petrified taxi-driver was gazing wildly at the peasants coming from the distant farms, attracted by the sound of the aeroplane. Don Luis took him by the throat and put the barrel of his revolver to the man's temple. "'Tell me what you know, or you're a dead man.' And when the unhappy wretch began to stammer out entreaties, "'It's no use moaning, no use hoping for assistance. Those people won't get here in time. So there's only one way of saving yourself. Speak.' Last night a gentleman came to Versailles from Paris in a taxi, left it and took yours. Is that it? Yes. The gentleman had a lady with him. Yes. And he engaged you to take him to Nantes. Yes. But he changed his mind on the way and told you to put him down. Yes. Where? Before we got to Mans, in a little road on the right with a sort of coach-house, looking like a shed, a hundred yards down it, they both got out there. And you went on. He paid me to. How much? Five hundred francs, and there was another fare waiting at Nantes that I was to pick up and bring back to Paris for a thousand francs more. Do you believe in that other fare? No, I think he wanted to put people off the scent by sending them after me to Nantes while he branched off. Still, I had my money. And when you left them, weren't you curious to see what happened? No. "'Take care, a movement of my finger, and I blow out your brains. Speak.' "'Well, yes, then. I went back on foot behind a bank covered with trees. The man had opened the coach-house and was starting a small limousine car. The lady did not want to get in. They argued pretty fiercely. He threatened and begged by turns. But I could not hear what they said. She seemed very tired. He gave her a glass of water, which he drew from a tap in the wall. Then she consented. He closed the door on her and took his seat at the wheel.' "'A glass of water!' cried Don Luis. "'Are you sure he put nothing else into the glass?' The driver seemed surprised at the question, and then answered, "'Yes, I think he did. He took something from his pocket.' "'Without the lady's knowledge?' "'Yes, she didn't see.' Don Luis mastered his horror. After all, it was impossible that the villain had poisoned Florence in that way, at that place, without anything to warrant so great a hurry. No, it was more likely that he had employed a narcotic.' a drug of some sort which would dull Florence's brain, and make her incapable of noticing by what new roads and through what towns he was taking her. And then, he repeated, she decided to step in. Yes, and he shut the door and got into the driver's seat. I went away then. Before knowing which direction they took? Yes. Did you suspect on the way that they thought that they were being followed? Oh, certainly. He did nothing but put his head out of the window. Did the lady cry out at all? No. Would you know him again if you saw him? No, I'm sure I shouldn't. At Versailles it was dark, and this morning I was too far away. Besides, it's curious, but the first time he struck me as very tall, and this morning, on the contrary, he looked quite a short man, as though bent in two. I can't understand it at all. Don Luis reflected. It seemed to him that he had asked all the necessary questions. 
Moreover, a gig drawn by a quick-trotting horse was approaching the crossroads. There were two others behind it, and the groups of peasants were now quite near. He must finish the business. He said to the chauffeur, "'I can see by your face that you intend to talk about me. Don't do that, my man. It would be foolish of you. Here's a thousand-franc note for you. Only, if you blab, I'll make you repent it. That's all I have to say to you.' He turned to Davan, whose machine was beginning to block the traffic, and asked, "'Can we start?' "'Whenever you like. Where are we going?' Paying no attention to the movements of the people coming from every side, Don Luis unfolded his map of France and spread it out before him. He experienced a few seconds of anxiety at seeing the complicated tangle of roads and picturing the infinite number of places to which the villain might carry Florence. But he pulled himself together. He did not allow himself to hesitate. He refused even to reflect. He was determined to find out, and to find out everything at once, without clues, without useless consideration, simply by the marvellous intuition which invariably guided him at any crisis in his life. And his self-respect also required that he should give Davan his answer without delay, and that the disappearance of those whom he was pursuing should not seem to embarrass him. With his eyes glued to the map, he placed one finger on Paris and another on Le Mans, and even before he had asked himself why the scoundrel had chosen that paris le mans angers route, he knew the answer to the question. The name of a town had struck him and made the truth appear like a flash of lightning. Alençon. Then and there, by the light of his memory, he penetrated the mystery. He repeated, "'Where are we going?' "'Back again, bearing to the left.' "'Any particular place?' "'Alençon.' "'All right,' said Devanne. "'Lend a hand, some of you. I can make an easy start from that field just there.' Don Luis and a few others helped him, and the preparations were soon made. Devanne tested his engine. Everything was in perfect order. At that moment a powerful racing-car, with a siren yelling like a vicious animal, came tearing along the Angers road and promptly stopped. Three men got out and rushed up to the driver of the yellow taxicab. Don Luis recognized them. They were Weber, the deputy chief, and the men who had taken him to the lock-up the night before, sent by the prefect of police to follow up the scoundrel's tracks. They had a brief interchange of words with the cab-driver, which seemed to put them out, and they kept on gesticulating and plying him with fresh questions while looking at their watches and consulting their road-maps. Don Luis went up to them. He was unrecognizable with his head wrapped in his aviation cap and his face concealed by his goggles. Changing his voice, "'The birds have flown, Mr. Deputy Chief,' he said. Weber looked at him in utter amazement. Don Luis grinned. Yes, flown. Our friend from the Ile Saint-Louis is an artful dodger, you know. My lord's in his third motor. After the yellow car of which you heard at Versailles last night, he took another at Le Mans, destination unknown. The deputy chief opened his eyes in amazement. Who was this person who was mentioning facts that had been telephoned to police headquarters only at two o'clock that morning? He gasped. But who are you, monsieur? What? Don't know me? What's the good of making appointments with people? You strain every nerve to be punctual, and then they ask you who you are. Come, Weber, confess that you're doing it to annoy me. Must you gaze on my features in broad daylight? Here goes. He raised his mask. Arsène Lupin! spluttered the detective. At your service, young fellow. On foot, in the saddle, and in mid-air. That's where I'm going now. Good-bye. And so great was Weber's astonishment at seeing Arsène Lupin whom he had taken to the lock-up twelve hours before, standing in front of him, free, at two hundred and forty miles from Paris, that Don Luis, as he went back to Davan, thought, "'What a crusher! I've knocked him out in one round. There's no hurry. 
The referee will count ten at least three times before Weber can say, Mother. Devan was ready. Don Luis climbed into the monoplane. The peasants pushed at the wheels. The machine started. North, northeast, Don Luis ordered. Ninety miles an hour, ten thousand francs. We've the wind against us, said Devan. Five thousand francs extra for the wind, shouted Don Luis. He admitted no obstacle in his haste to reach Damigny. He now understood the whole thing, and harking back to the very beginning, he was surprised that his mind had never perceived the connection between the two skeletons hanging in the barn and the series of crimes resulting from the Mornington inheritance. Stranger still, how was it that the almost certain murder of Langenot, Hippolyte Fauville's old friend, had not afforded him all the clues which it contained? The crux of the sinister plot lay in that. Who could have intercepted on Fauville's behalf the letters of accusation which Fauville was supposed to write to his old friend Langenot, except someone in the village, or someone who had lived in the village? And now everything was clear. It was the nameless scoundrel who had started his career of crime by killing old Langenot and then the de Dessus-la-Mer couple. The method was the same as later on. It was not direct murder, but anonymous murder, murder by suggestion. Like Mornington the American, like Fauville the engineer, like Marie, like Gaston Sauverand, old Langenot had been craftily done away with, and the de Dessus-la-Mer couple driven to commit suicide in the barn. It was from there that the tiger had come to Paris, where later he was to find Fauville and Cosmo Mornington, and plot the tragic affair of the inheritance. And it was there that he was now returning. There was no doubt about that. To begin with, the fact that he had administered a narcotic to Florence constituted an indisputable proof. Was he not obliged to put Florence to sleep in order to prevent her from recognizing the landscape at Alençon and Damigny, or the old castle which she had explored with Gaston Sauverin? On the other hand, the Le mans nantes route, which had been taken to put the police on a false track, meant only an extra hour or two at most for anyone motoring to Alençon. Lastly, that coach-house near a big town, that limousine waiting, ready charged with petrol, showed that the villain, when he intended to visit his retreat, took the precaution of stopping at Le Mans, in order to go from there in his limousine to Langenot's deserted estate. He would therefore reach his lair at ten o'clock that morning, and he would arrive there with Florence Lavassar dead asleep. The question forced itself upon him, the terrible, persistent question, what did he mean to do with Florence Lavassar? "'Faster! Faster!' cried Don Luis. Now that he knew the scoundrel's haunt, the man's scheme became hideously evident to him. Feeling himself hunted down, lost, an object of hatred and terror to Florence, whose eyes were now open to the true state of things, what plan could he have in mind except his invariable plan of murder? "'Faster!' cried Don Luis. "'We're making no headway. Go faster, can't you?' Florence murdered. Perhaps the crime was not yet accomplished. No, it could not be. Killing takes time. It is preceded by words, by the offer of a bargain, by threats, by entreaties, by a wholly unspeakable scene. But the thing was being prepared. Florence was going to die. Florence was going to die by the hand of the brute who loved her. For he loved her, Don Luis had an intuition of that monstrous love, and he was bound to believe that such a love could only end in torture and bloodshed. Sablé, sciez le guillaume. The earth sped beneath them. The trees and houses glided by like shadows. And then, Alençon. It was hardly more than a quarter to two when they landed in a meadow between the town and Damigny. Don Luis made inquiries. A number of motor-cars had passed along the road to Damigny, including a small limousine driven by a gentleman who had turned down a cross-road. And this cross-road led to the woods at the back of Langenot's estate, the old castle. 
Don Luis's conviction was so firm that after taking leave of Devanne, he helped him to start on his homeward flight. He had no further need of him. He needed nobody. The final duel was at hand. He ran along, guided by the tracks of the tires in the dust, and followed the cross-road. To his great surprise, this road went nowhere near the wall behind the barn from which he had jumped a few weeks before. After clearing the woods, Don Luis came out into a large untilled space where the road turned back toward the estate, and ended at an old two-winged gate protected with iron sheets and bars. The limousine had gone in that way. "'And I must get in this way, too,' thought Don Luis. "'I must get in at all costs, and immediately, without wasting time in looking for an opening or a handy tree.' Now the wall was thirteen feet high at this spot. Don Luis got in. How he managed it, by what superhuman effort, he himself could not have said after he had done it. Somehow or other, by hanging on to invisible projections, by digging a knife which he had borrowed from Devanne into the interstices between the stones, he managed it. And when he was on the other side, he discovered the tracks of the tires running to the left, toward a part of the grounds which he did not know, more undulating than the other, and broken up with little hills and ruined buildings covered with thick curtains of ivy. Deserted though the rest of the park was, this portion seemed much more uncivilized, in spite of the ragged remains of box and laurel hedges that stood here and there amidst the nettles and brambles, and the luxuriant swarm of tall wildflowers, valerian, malign, hemlock, foxglove, and angelica. Suddenly, on turning the corner of an old hedge of clipped yews, Don Luis saw the limousine, which had been left, or rather hidden there in a hollow. The door was open. The disorder of the inside of the car, the rug hanging over the footboard, a broken window, a cushion on the floor, all bore witness to a struggle. The scoundrel had no doubt taken advantage of the fact that Florence was asleep to tie her up, and on arriving, when he tried to take her out of the car, Florence must have clutched at everything that offered. Don Luis at once verified the correctness of his theory. As he went along the very narrow, grass-grown path that led up the slope, he saw that the grass was uniformly pressed down. Oh, the villain, he thought, the villain, he doesn't carry his victim, he drags her. If he had listened only to his instinct, he would have rushed to Florence's rescue. But his profound sense of what to do and what to avoid saved him from committing any such imprudence. At the first alarm, at the least sound, the tiger would have throttled his prey. To escape this hideous catastrophe, Don Luis must take him by surprise, and then and there deprive him of his power of action. He controlled himself, therefore, and slowly and cautiously mounted the incline. The path ran upward between heaps of stones and fallen buildings, and among clumps of shrubs overtopped by beeches and oaks. The place was evidently the site of the old feudal castle which had given the estate its name. And it was here, near the top, that the scoundrel had selected one of his retreats. The trail continued over the trampled herbage, and Don Luis even caught sight of something shining on the ground in a tuft of grass. It was a ring a tiny and very simple ring, consisting of a gold circlet and two small pearls, which he had often noticed on Florence's finger. And the fact that caught his attention was that a blade of grass passed and repassed and passed a third time through the inside of the ring, like a ribbon that had been rolled round it deliberately. "'It's a clear signal,' said Perenna to himself. The villain probably stopped here to rest, and Florence, bound up, but with her fingers free, was able to leave this evidence of her passage.' So the girl still hoped. She expected assistance, and Don Luis reflected with emotion that it was perhaps to him that this last desperate appeal was addressed. Fifty steps farther, and this detail pointed to the rather curious fatigue experienced by the scoundrel. 
there was a second halt and a second clue, a flower, a field sage, which the poor little hand had picked and plucked of its petals. Next came the print of the five fingers dug into the ground, and next a cross drawn with a pebble. And in this way he was able to follow, minute by minute, all the successive stages of the horrible journey. The last stopping-place was near. The climb became steeper and rougher. The fallen stones occasioned more frequent obstacles. On the right the Gothic arches, the remains of a chapel, stood out against the blue sky. On the left was a strip of wall with a mantelpiece still clinging to it. Twenty steps farther Don Luis stopped. He seemed to hear something. He listened. He was not mistaken. The sound was repeated, and it was the sound of laughter. But such an awful laugh! A strident laugh, evil as the laughter of a devil, and so shrill! It was more like the laugh of a woman, of a mad woman. Again silence. Then another noise, the noise of an implement striking the ground. Then silence again. End of chapter 19, part 1